brought to you by CGTN Europe. I'm Stephen Cole. Welcome to the Agenda podcast. The killing of George Floyd in the United States earlier this year has put the issue of racism and prejudice back in the headlines. There's been an outpouring of rage and protests around the world as many tried to come to terms with racism on a personal and an institutional level. Today on the podcast, we look at prejudice and why and how human beings discriminate against each other. We also look at what we, as a society, can do to address that. The impact of Mr. Floyd's death has been far-reaching. Movies like Gone with the Wind have been questioned for racist stereotypes. Television shows have been taken off air and across the world statues of slave owners are coming down. But is that really any solution to the issue of race? To get to the bottom of the matter, I spoke to political activist Chumani Maxwelli and Harriet Watt University's Sir Jeff Palmer. First to you, Sir Geoffrey, you were the first black professor uh, in Scotland. Has prejudice played a part in your life at all? Well, I, I've been in the, um, in, in the United Kingdom since 1955. So I've lived through, um, you know, power. I've lived through politicians who use the N-word to get elected in Smithwick. Um, I've lived through, um, you know, being rejected um, because um, I was told to go home and grow bananas um, by a very famous politician. And I've been involved in community work, um, you know, all my time in the UK. So I'm very much aware of the climate of, 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 of racism, which, you know, has its, its origin to some way in, in, in Scotland, basically because of the philosopher David Hume, who actually said, you know, that in his view, Negroes are inferior to whites. And I think that is the same um, uh, attitude that killed George Floyd in America. Sir Geoffrey, do you think that the UK is a prejudiced country? Prejudice is about prejudgment. I'll give you two little stories where last year I, I, I went to give a lecture in, in Edinburgh and the, the, the attendant said, well, what do you want? And I said, well, I've come to give a lecture. And, and she said, um, uh, at what time? And I said, two o'clock. And she said, well, you can't be giving a lecture at two o'clock because that lecture has been given by Professor Sir Jeff Palmer. And the other incident was where I went to another institution, you know, that, that I know well, and, and the janitor excluded me. And he said, do you know anybody there? And I said, yeah, I used to know the previous boss. And he said, were you a chauffeur? Now, that's the, the attitude which um, a lot of British people have. Chimani... Uh, you heard Sir Geoffrey talk there about race, and one of the biggest rows globally is about whether or not statues with uh, a race past should come down. You've launched the Roads Must Fall campaign. What are you fighting for? Um, well, our, our position is very simple, that um, part of our joining the long historical struggle of black people across the world, that is of anti-colonialism, and therefore calling for the decolonization of Africa, 
And part of that struggle was really to, to remind the world about the, the, the suffering of African people in the hands of the colonialist and, of course, the imperialist. One of the leading figures in, in, in that um, 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 colonialization of Africa and other parts of the world was um, uh, uh, Cecil John Rhodes. And of course, he has um, brutally uh, murdered African people, enslaved African people throughout Southern Africa. And our position, we've always known throughout history that Rhodes was in fact a, a, a direct agent of colonialism and reporting to the Queen of England um, that, that for us, we, we see the suffering of African people, not just only in Africa, but across the world as a part of a historical project that was um, colonization. If you come to South Africa, you go to Cape Town or you go to Free State or, or Pretoria for that matter, you find these iconographic images of the colonialists. And of course, this for us, it tells us there's still a huge uh, racial residue of the colonial past, part of that past is the representation and the celebration uh, of the colonial imperialists. Okay, well, let's put that to Sir Geoffrey. Uh, do you agree? But should we be taking down the, the statues uh, of slave owners or people with links to slavery and putting up statues of abolitionists, perhaps, instead? You know, if you start taking down statues, then you've got to start taking down all the other buildings and institutions linked to slavery, because it would seem um, a, a bit sort of crass to just say statues only because they're easy to take down. The point is that, as far as my view is, the statues are there, to me, as evidence of their behavior. And, and in my view, if you take down the evidence, you take down the deed, and therefore, what I would prefer is to have narratives put on these um, statues which actually describe their actions exactly as, as my colleague has described them. Because somehow, you know, I'm from Jamaica and Jamaica was a, a very important slave colony. You know, we had a, over 800,000 slaves. And my ancestors fought slave owners by looking at them. And therefore, you can't tell me that I can't pass a piece of metal or stone. And therefore, I really feel that, you know, there's an old colonial statement which goes as follows. If you remove the evidence, you remove the deed, and out of sight, out of mind. And therefore, I just feel that the next statue we take down in, in, in the UK, we've taken down two, the next statue should be racism. And therefore, somehow, I, I don't want a short-term fix. We've taken down a statue, so you're okay. What I want is to look at racism properly worldwide and try and address the, 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 the prejudice, the prejudgment, where white people look at a black person and, and say that, you know, just as Hume did over 200 and odd years ago, to say they are inferior to us and it doesn't matter what we take down. That's and not going to change it. The, the idea of evidence that 
is, is shown through statues. Therefore, if you take statues uh, down, you will then hide the evidence. It's a bit um, unfortunate for me because all of us, we know that uh, the Jewish people were, were killed during Holocaust. Have people forgotten about uh, what Adolf Hitler did to the Jewish people? No. Everyone is against what Hitler has done. But there is no symbols of Hitler uh, all over around the world, neither here in South Africa nor in Germany. Therefore, but we still remember what Hitler has done. We have not forgotten. Why must we have the statues that are around to remind us about the history of atrocities? It's a bit, um, that argument for me, it's a bit lazy, okay? Because it's, it says that as human, we cannot remember anything unless we see it. Different countries have different uh, historic relations to prejudice. So should we all take the same approach to fighting prejudice? Well, again, you know, I've, I listened to the argument. And the point is that we don't have any Hitler statues to take down. So that's a fallacious argument. The point is, if you go to Germany, if you go to Germany, Auschwitz is still there. Why don't they take that down? The point is that it is there to remind us. And what I'm concerned about, you know, um, you know, my, my colleague can say he remembers Hitler. Okay, that's um, 50 years or so ago. The point is that, you know, how much about Germany can he remember? What about the second part of the question? Different countries having different historic relations to prejudice show should they all take the same uh, approaches to fighting prejudice? Oh, yes, I think different countries may take different approach in terms of to getting rid of racism. But racism is about, um, you know, taking away somebody's rights because of a, of a pigment. And that is the main issue. The fact is that we want, or I want, in fact, black people to be representative of, our, of their societies everywhere. And I don't care whether it's South Africa, um, uh, 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 United States or Britain. And I'm concerned about the poor representation. And if my colleague can tell me one thing that will do that within the next five years, then I'm willing to listen. For me, I agree that indeed, different countries must take a different approach in fighting right. against racism. Right. But part of that fight, it's an honest fight about the, the white people themselves. I mean, there's so many white people who agree against racism, who fight against racism. That's but right. But the question is, politically, how do we achieve that together? Uh, Sir Jeff Palmer in Edinburgh, Jumani Maxwelli in Cape Town, thank you both for joining us here on the agenda. To understand why human beings discriminate against each other, it's important to understand the psychology behind prejudice. To find out more, I spoke to Dr. Mary E. Kite, a social psychology professor and the co-author of The Psychology of Prejudice and Discrimination. Um, and I want to start by asking you how we try and change uh, ancient patterns of behaviour. And, and is that the first step to recognizing our own prejudices? So I think the most important place to start is to think about the function that stereotypes serve for us. 
So we have stereotypes because they guide us through the world and stereotypes give us a lot of information about how to navigate the world. So when you're meeting someone for the first time, your stereotypes give you a place to start with that individual. So if you're talking to a man that you've never met before, you would probably make the assumption that if he's relatively young, he's probably working. And that gives you some information to talk about. But what gets complicated is when we have negative stereotypes. So for example, when we hold the belief that African-Americans are lazy, then those stereotypes kind of get in the way and set the stage for negative interactions. So one important thing we can do is try to change those negative stereotypes and to question the stereotypes that we have. We have stereotypes about social groups that guide us. And so those stereotypes are in what we call schemas. And those stereotypes come from the culture. They come from the media. They come from our past experience. And so that's the place where we can really make a lot of change because we can question our assumptions about that group and change what's in that information box, if you will, that we have about that group. And so that when we start the conversation, we are assuming different things than we might have based on what we learned growing up, for example. Can you teach people not to have stereotypes or teach people perhaps not to be prejudiced? One thing you can do is really encourage people to be open to having a conversation so that if you're having a conversation and you you have your stereotypes questioned, it's nice if you can just be open to that idea and not defensive. The other thing we can do is increase our contact with members of different social groups. And so the more we interact with people who are different from us, the more we are able to adjust our stereotypes. But that's the biggest ask of all, isn't it? Because so often we stay within our own groups. We do. And there's three... um, Jeff Mio has written about this idea of the three S's. And one S is simple and the other S is safe and the third S is sane. So it's very carefully um, important for us. If we're in our group, we know the rules. And so it's very simple. We know how to interact with that group. And so it's also safe because we don't have to worry about saying the wrong thing. We don't have to worry about being defensive. We know how to interact and what's expected from us. And the same part of that is then that feels normal to us we feel like we're doing what should be done and what fits with the social norms. So when we go outside of our group, then those rules change and we might feel really uncomfortable because we don't know the rules anymore and people are very leery about making a mistake. And so when we open ourselves to new situations, we also have to open ourselves to the possibility that we're gonna get something wrong or we're gonna make a mistake And when we do that, to think about it as a learning experience rather than a criticism. So where does the prejudice come from? Is it learned? Uh, Is it handed down by parents? Is it generational? It's all of those things. Prejudice is built into our culture and our cultural systems and our cultural beliefs. And some of it is mirrored in the media and some of it comes from our parents. A lot of it comes from our peers. And so... 
it's kind of everywhere. It permeates a lot of our lives in ways that we don't think about. So I think it's helpful to think about prejudice in three different ways. One way is to think about your interpersonal interactions, what you believe and what you do as a person. The other thing that's helpful is to think about that system level that kind of goes under the radar and we're so used to it that we don't necessarily think through why we have it and why we make the decisions that we do. So to give you just one example, um, in the United States, if you're married and you both work, you pay lower taxes than two individuals with the same income who um, aren't married and are filing separately. That's a decision we made at the system level and it has implications. It benefits one group and doesn't benefit another. So when you think about those system level factors, you can start to see that a lot of the things that are around us are built into the system and we don't necessarily think through the implications of those system-wide decisions. And there are just lots of them. And then the third level to think about are cultural factors that influence what we think is important. And I think a really great example is to think about what is in an art museum and to ask the question of how it got there, who decided what paintings are worth what amount of money, what sculptures are influential, and why those decisions were made and who made them, and to think about how those decisions might be different if a different set of people made those decisions. So again, it kind of goes under the radar that we all just assume that the famous artists we know are the most talented people and deserve to be recognized but then that means a lot of people, and usually those are people who are not white and not male, are not recognized in major museums. And we see that changing a lot, which is a very positive sign that people are recognizing more and featuring other groups and saying this art is also culturally important for us. That brings us to the end of another edition of The Agenda. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify. You can also find us on CGTN Europe, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. The most interesting questions. Are there other living beings beyond Earth? Will man or machine be in charge? Great question. Always have more than one answer. Well, hold on, uh, let me just draw up a list. And always come from more than one person. That's where the credibility lies. The concept of having a machinery which is alive and evolving didn't wait for us. The end of inequality of incomes and wealth around the world, can you imagine how difficult that is at the moment to achieve? Every episode, Stephen Cole, Murray Beveridge, and some of the brightest minds out there shed light on the answers to some of the most intriguing questions. There are two ways of looking at this. Machines can't really discriminate between civilian and military targets. The Answers Project. Maybe we need to just look at this in a bit more detail. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The Answers Project, a new podcast from CGTN Europe.